This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon, listeners. My name's Erin Jones, and I'm your host tonight for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Uh, welcome to the show. We've got a lot to get through, as always. Uh, I'll just start off with a couple of announcements, or one in particular. It's the monthly BZE discussion group. It normally falls on the first Monday of the month, but because we had Easter, it's actually on tonight. So, and it's going to be a great one. It's Simon Corbell, who is the Victorian renewable energy advocate we had a chat with Simon a while back on the show about what that role entailed what the Victorian renewable energy target is and and the different kind of processes and mechanisms that they're going to use to achieve that so we know that this discussion group will be a really interesting night um Simon was instrumental in designing the reverse auction mechanism in the ACT, which is really helping them move transition rapidly to 100% renewable energy. So that is actually on tonight from 6.30 till 8pm and uh, I know we're right on 5 now so if you do want to get along to that start making arrangements for it and I'll just flag to people that are regular attenders of that event that it is in a new venue Um, so because we expect such a good crowd and Simon is such a great speaker is actually at the Prest Theatre which is FBE Theatre 1, room G06, building 105. Um, this is all at the University of Melbourne. So that is at 111 Barry Street, Carlton. So if you're looking for pub- public transport, take any tram on Swanston Street and get off at Stop 1 at University of Melbourne. We appreciate a gold coin donation to put these events on. We'd like to also thank our spo- our sponsors for that particular event, University of Melbourne and the Australian-German Climate and Energy College, who are supporters of that event. Those discussion groups have been going for a long time. They are videoed. If you can't make it along their live, and there's a great back catalogue of all those um, discussion groups going back quite a long way on the BZE website. So get your skates on for that and be there for starting at 6.30. So, look, we're... um 
I'm really pleased to bring you today's show. We're going to talk a bit about some local government stuff, which I'm particularly passionate about. We've done a few shows focusing on initiatives on uh, local government, and um, we're going to kick that off straight away. So let's get on to chatting with Trent McCarthy. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR, and I've made a bit of a focus um, on local government over a number of shows, and I think local government is where so much action is actually taking place, local and, and state government, but particularly at local government. So I'm really pleased that we can continue that focus and look at some of the initiatives. And today we're talking to Trent McCarthy, and Trent is a councillor at the City of Darabin. And Darabin, um, and we'll, we'll talk more of the detail once we get chatting with Trent, are really taking this climate situation seriously and deeming it for what it is, which is now a climate emergency. And we really need to give it the emphasis and the timeliness of action to warrant any other type of emergency that's going on in, in, um, in our society and you know the broader global perspective. So we're really pleased to have Trent on the line and we're going to talk about the initiative that's going on at Darabin how that came to be and where it's up to currently. So welcome, Trent. Thanks, Erin. Great to be with you. Now, just give our listeners a little bit of a background because we have um, people who listen to the podcast from um, all over the country and um, international listeners. So just tell us initially where Darabin is and, and the size of the community that, that it represents. Sure. So Darabin is in the northern suburbs of Melbourne and it, we have uh, around 150,000 residents uh, and around uh, 60,000 businesses. So we're a, a fairly dense inner urban community um, and we stretch from those inner suburbs all the way out to, um, uh, not to the urban fringe, but to sort of the, the, uh, the sort of before you start to get to the new greenfield developments. So, um, and a very culturally diverse community. Uh, we've got people from um, dozens of different language groups and, uh, and also a community that faces um, some of the real challenges with um, both an ageing population at one end of the spectrum and a baby boom at the other. So um, in, in some respects we're a lot like a lot of inner suburban areas um, and uh, I think we've tried to, to, to use that to our advantage when we talk about what we do. Yeah, great. Um, now talk to us a little bit because as I said, you know, I have done a number of shows focusing on local government initiatives. Some are um, further down the road and, and acting in different different ways and kind of tackling it from a different perspective. But give us a background on, you know, where Darabin is today and how it's kind of gotten to that point. Sure. So Darabin's always had a really strong focus on, on climate action going back to the early 2000s. It was one of the, uh, the early councils in Melbourne and in Australia to, um, to sort of take an interest in, in climate change. And in those days, obviously, we were talking a lot more about global warming and there was a, obviously a very different um, public awareness. In 2008, 2009, when I joined the council um, as a councillor, we, had, we were going through the process of setting um, a zero emissions target, which um, most councils in, uh, in Melbourne and uh, no, Sydney and other city, capital cities were looking at. And, uh, and we thought that there'd be a lot more action by state and federal governments in the intervening decade. Um, didn't we all? Uh, didn't we indeed. <laughs> and so um, we, of course, uh, set what we described at the time as being a fairly lofty advocacy target because we really talked about you know zero emissions now, but uh, we knew that it would take us uh, a decade to get there. We're getting awfully close to that uh, date of, of 2020 when we originally set that target. And in fact, 
what has happened um, in our community, not just in the council, but in our community, is a really growing awareness of the failure of um, both federal and state governments to take um, climate seriously, to obviously have it you know, rolled into a partisan form of games, gamesmanship. And our, I think our community got fed up with that and, and said, you know what, we actually need to recognise what the science says, which is that we're in a state of climate emergency um, the, the Paris targets are, are, are whilst they're, 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 they're good in one sense of having a, 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 a global commitment, they're, um, they're actually a disaster in terms of what the science actually says. And we want urgent action and an emergency action um, in the way that it's been described by, by various groups um, over a number of years now. So in the lead up to the 2016 council elections, um, some of our local community groups, uh, climate action groups, went around and got a majority of the council candidates to sign up to the climate emergency declaration. At our first meeting in December 2016, um, into my third term by this stage, um, I had the absolute honour of putting forward um, a motion that the council recognises that we're in a state of climate emergency that requires urgent action by all levels of government. And, uh, and the words are out there, it's quite public, but what that's led to is um, us being, I believe, the first local government in Australia and, and possibly the world to um, to actually recognise the climate emergency uh, in that way and then to go on and create a climate emergency plan. And this has led to a whole lot of really exciting things um, because it's committed the whole organisation, not just the, the environment department, but also the entire organisation to um, looking at emergency setting for climate and, uh, and making really good decisions um, in response to that. Um, and a big one, of course, that I'm particularly excited about is our rollout of, uh, of our solar savers program, which is going to see 4,000 homes um, retrofitted over the next four years, which is the biggest um, solar rollout in any municipal area in Australia, which um, we're really excited about. Now, this has been quite an award-winning program, which has really helped you know, a various number of households, but particularly lower-income households or fixed-income households, to access solar, hasn't it? Can you explain a little bit about that program? Yeah, so Solar Savers started out as a, 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 I suppose, a bit of a compromise. I I really wanted to see a a rollout of um, solar or some big solar programs um, coming out of our council. We'd been involved in bulk programs in the past, which were really the sort of opt-in programs where people had to bring their own money along, they had to agree to be part of the council's group buying program and they benefited from that group buying approach. Um, this flipped that whole model on its head and Solar Savers said, we want to create a way for anyone, regardless of their income, to be able to put solar on their roof and to pay that back over a 10-year period. And the one thing that we realised that we had um, as, a, as a local council was the ability to charge rates. Most people have a negative association with rates, but we found that there was a positive association because what it meant was that we could um, go to our, particularly our pension households, and there were 300 of them in the first program, and, and to say to them, if we could guarantee you um, that we put solar on your roof and every year, because of the, um, the savings you'll make on your energy bills, you'll, you'll be at least $100 in front, and by 10 years you'll be $400 in, in front, um, would you do it? And uh, to our surprise, the vast majority of pensioners that we contacted, and I think there was about 13,000 that we, um, we made contact with in that first, uh, first pilot program, uh, the vast majority of people said yes, they would love to do it. And so that program was oversubscribed very quickly. And uh, what it's meant is that we've got people who effectively pay for their solar back through their rates. So the council 
um, pays up front for the cost of um, purchasing the solar uh, and effectively receives that money back. The council isn't out of pocket, but what it means is the council just loses the interest on that money, and that's a small price to pay for any council, I think, when you can see the sort of outcome. Um, in our second tranche of the program, we thought, well, can we do the same thing for rental properties? And can we do the same thing for community centres? And so we got uh, around 40 rental properties that were part of a co-op to come together, and we did the same thing as well. Um, where we are now, which is which is exciting, is that we've said that we've, we've been working mostly with low-income homes, um, but to get the sort of scale that we know we need to see in terms of a local response to climate change and to support people... Um, during, uh, during, particularly during heat waves, because one thing we do, I suppose this is the other thing to mention with solar savers, the one of the challenges that we faced was that a lot of our um, pensioners and older people were becoming quite ill during heat waves because they would um, be in very hot houses with poor insulation and they wouldn't they wouldn't um, you know turn on the air conditioning or anything like that because yeah. they felt that they were going it was going to cost them a fortune. And it's so kind of the a- silent killer heat waves. We've we've oh. done a few focuses on it, and, and people, you know, bushfires and floods and things like that, terrible events. But they're very visual, very impactful. Um, you know, heat waves uh, are actually bigger impacts, particularly on vulnerable populations. But don't you know? Don't generate those same visuals for the six o'clock news that um, those other natural, well, climate-induced and um, you know more frequently happening big events that we see. That, that's right. In fact, um, uh, over 300 um, deaths were recorded as a result of the 2009 um, hot days that we had. Uh, there was obviously um, a dreadful number of um, deaths in the, the, the bushfires as well, but, um, but far more from the heat wave. And mm. what we also knew from some studies that came out was that we had two of the suburbs, being Preston and Reservoir, which had um, some of the highest heat wave affected areas. So mm. we felt we had a very strong social responsibility um, to free people up to be able to keep themselves cool on those days and so this was what probably built the political consensus around the council around this program was was that basically we wanted to keep people well and wanted to keep them safe and uh, and that meant that people that weren't councillors that weren't particularly interested in climate or energy um, had a reason to get on board and I think that's one of the big things that we take away from this is that sometimes people get on board for different reasons but at the end of the day they all love this program and they all want to own it and it's fantastic um, now we've basically said we've thrown the door open and we've said look we want everyone to get on board and uh, and that's why we've moved at scale to um, to 4,000 buildings over the next four years which will in fact be um, a mixture of uh, pensioner and low-income households, um, normal family-sized households, and or even some small businesses as well. And by going at scale, it means that we can negotiate better prices, but it also means that we create this really strong peer-based effect where we move through neighbourhoods and effectively um, roll out um, solar across uh, whole neighbourhoods. And that's, um, for me, is the really visual thing that, that uh, I think builds pride in, in both solar, but also in people taking small actions in their own lives. And that's fantastic. What's happening in the, from the technology point of view is that... Um you know, solar is obviously becoming the, um, or, or more to the point, batteries is becoming the perfect partner with solar and that combination. So will, you know, as this program rolls out and battery prices come down, is, is there a thought that that kind of an incorporation of those two technologies will start rolling out together? Uh, d- definitely. We, we, we actually looked at whether we could incorporate batteries as part of a, a rollout program. And at this stage, um, in terms of the price point, 
we're, we're not quite there. Um, it just made it uh, a little bit difficult to get enough, enough people on board. But what we have looked at is combining um, an energy efficiency program with mm-hmm. solar. Um, so there are going to be some households that also have an energy efficiency upgrade as part of that program. And I'd like to think that uh, in a couple of years down the track, um, once uh, battery prices start to, to drop a little bit and there's a few more players in the market, that we could incorporate um, a battery and, and solar PV combination. Um, and that would mean that there'd be a lot of households in our community that would effectively go off the grid. Mm. Um, that's a scary thing for power companies, but that's that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's the new terrain. And that's, exactly. that's the thing. We're having conversations with them at the moment to say, this is what we're doing. We'd like you to think about making these changes um, so that you can be part of this, uh, this rooftop revolution that we've been pushing for for a number of years. Yeah. Listeners, we're chatting to Trent McCarthy from, and he is a councillor with City of Darabin. I'm Erin Jones, and you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show on 3CR. So I'm just looking at the climate emergency plan that City of Darabin are putting out, um, and if we just go through, so we've spoken a bit about solar and, and that solar savers program. So, but if we want to just just step through what each of those those points are, so we're looking at a doubling of solar over the next five years, um, the establishment of a energy Darabin Energy Foundation, which is now going to be called the Climate Emergency uh, Climate Emergency Darabin. Sorry, supporting homes and businesses to be more efficient, calling on other levels of government to respond to climate emergency and reviewing all of council's programs and policies to assure alignment. So those are kind of your kind of headline goals that you that the council has committed to. Do you just want to kind of go into a bit more detail on each of those? We've kind of touched on um, certainly the solar one and and that target with the with the five years. So some of yes. these so with the target with five years we've we've said that uh, we Basically, with the emergency setting, it means that we have compelled ourselves to do everything within our powers and where we don't have the powers to seek new powers in order to respond um, to climate, both in terms of adaptation and mitigation. And we believe that by doing that, we start to model that it can be done, which creates pressure on other mm. councils and other levels of government because once you see someone doing something um, and doing it well, hopefully, um, it makes it very hard for others to ignore that. And we, we've already seen other communities... Um, uh, do some fantastic work in this space, which in, then inspires us in return. Um, in terms of our doubling of, of, uh, of renewable energy production locally, we've currently got 18 megawatts produced out of Darabin, and that will go to 36 um, over the next uh, four or five years as a result of our own in-house programs. But we want to encourage the commercial sector to do the same things. Every time we hear about a, a local business, whether it's a manufacturer or our local cinema, that's, um, that's doing something, we get on board and, and turn them into heroes and we really want to show that um, other businesses can get on board in that way. Um, in terms of our advocacy to other levels of government, we're getting behind some of the initiatives like the, um, the push to, to state governments to a- adopt policies um, around the climate emergency. So in the recent, um, we had a by-election in the seat of Northcote last year and we used that as an opportunity to advocate to all the parties that were involved to say, this is a policy setting that we've, we've adopted, we'd like you to consider the same thing at the state level. And where we see our role as a council is that um, a lot of the things that we want to do to support our community and that our community expects of us 
are the same things that other levels of government can do as well. But there's also an international element to this too. Um, we're starting to see councils around the world adopt climate emergency positions. Um, the city of Los Angeles has, uh, is looking at its own climate, climate mobilisation department and looking at how they can work at that grassroots level um, to really mobilise people for a climate emergency response. We're doing something very similar. <laughs> so the opportunity for, um, for councils on different sides of the world to work in collaboration and learn from each other um, is now very apparent. Um, we're looking at how we can mobilise people and so there's been a number of ideas thrown around. Um, the way we've sought to implement these is to set up a, a new organisation which will be at arm's length of the council and this ensures that it will continue to operate um, regardless of the political flavour um, mm-hmm. of the council. It's called Climate Emergencies Arab and we'll, we'll actually be appointing the members uh, of that board uh, at our council meeting this evening which is very exciting. Oh, so um, we're looking forward to that. There's been an interim board to, to develop the concept further and essentially, um, they're, they're going to be doing work that's probably uh, a combination of, um, of what existing energy foundations do, but also having a much stronger focus on mobilisation and, um, and community empowerment. And, uh, and we think that this is a model which we could help and support other councils to look at as well. Um, we never, we'll never be able to do everything we want to do, but we do know that there's um, a lot we can do. And the other thing that's just happened is that um, our new CEO has just restructured the organisation um, under the guise of a climate emergency response. I think we're the okay. first organisational council in the world to actually have a organisational restructure based on the climate emergency. Oh. So. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, God, that's taking it really seriously, which is fantastic. Um, I've... Uh, I tend to reference this a bit because I think it's a fantastic project. We did a show last year on the Sunshine Coast solar farm, which is a solar farm that was built in, on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland uh, as a direct initiative of the council. It's council-owned, and basically that offsets 100% of council's energy needs across street lighting, swimming pools, libraries, offices, depots, you name it. Anything that's a council facility, this offsets it 100%. Um, there were some policy drivers to get that off the ground, but at the end of the day, it's stacked up economically and it's going to save ratepayers significant amounts of money. So it's just interesting seeing the different uh, angles that, that councils are taking, whether it's kind of that direct action of building a big infrastructure project um, or you know the kind of multi-layered approach that you're doing now, looking across council uh, and, and dealing, you know, having projects that reach out into the community, such as your solar savers and, and things like that. So it's really interesting, and I'd be interested to know more what those frameworks are that, um, you know, councils are talking to one another. Where do you feel that you, you can get the most leverage to kind of share these ideas with other local governments, whether it be nationally or internationally? Yeah, so we've already started to do a little bit of that. I spoke recently at the National Climate Leadership Conference and also to a, a meeting of uh, New South Wales councillors around um, these exact issues because the, my, my sense in this is that um, it doesn't matter how people move in this direction. Um, as long as they're moving in this direction, whatever, mm. whatever they're doing, it's a positive thing. And and I really think that the leadership in this space is coming from local government more than anywhere. Yeah. But also there's a, a real desire from... Um, other institutions and other organisations, non-government ones, to, to work in partnership with us. And, and so that's where there's some good chances for collaboration. Um, 
we're going to be hosting the first climate emergency conference in the world uh, later this year, so we've already announced that. We'll be calling for, for papers soon, and we're really encouraging um, council and other organisations in the non-government and private sector as well to come along and, and be part of the work that we're doing together um, to learn from each other, but also to, to look at the, um, the relative merits of building a big solar farm versus um, mm. doing a solar savers program. In, uh, in one case, we're also looking at Darabin at, at how, you know, whether we could in the future partner with regional councils that don't have the scale that we do but could benefit from being part of our programs. Yeah. And I think that sort of collaboration between city and country um, or even interstate is, uh, is the next frontier in this space. Um, all the things that, um, that uh, happen in other, other spheres that are collaborative um, should happen in this space as well because we can't do it alone. And uh, the more we do it and the more we um, inter- interweave our programs and I think our approaches, it actually strengthens the longevity of these things as well. Um, I am struck as well that that as as councils are moving rapidly in this t- in this zone, just as we did ten years ago with our various zero emissions targets, um, we're also identifying all the barriers, and some of those barriers are at the state and federal level. So that's where we collectively um, can come together and and, uh, and get those rules changed, which actually support um, local communities to make a change too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we, we've spoken recently on the show about. Um you know the national energy guarantee and and the um, impediments that that potentially puts on a lot of state governments, which have set um, you know renewable energy targets. And so I think it is really important for these other levels of government to collaborate and keep pushing uh, for positive change and not this restrictive uh, parameters that that could be potential under the the national energy guarantee. So. Look, that's that's fantastic. I'm so I'm so pleased that that this is happening, and I'd really like to keep in touch with your progress on this. Uh, it, it's really important um, because local governments a are so effective. At, you know, they're the closest government level to communities, um, but also you know local governments are the ones in lots of cases that are left picking up the bills when there's huge you know uh, weather events that are exasperated by climate. You know, roads getting washed away, sewage treatment plants, all these type of major infrastructure which have hundreds of millions of dollars, that comes back to the ratepayer and, and, and broadly the, the taxpayer with other you know state and federal monies to, to, to fix those type of things but you know what, what you're doing and what, what the council's doing um, yes there might be some cost and okay the council doesn't get interest on money that it's using to support people to get a solar system but it's about that mitigation for those other you know big costs not, not only to human health but to, but to infrastructure that sometimes can get a little bit swept under the carpet and people don't kind of put two and two together and realise that Hey, this work is really important on so many levels. That, that's right. In, in fact, we started to adopt the language of, of public health and particularly preventative health to say that what we're doing in the climate and solar space um, in particular and the climate emergency response is not that different to um, a preventative health model or a, um, uh, a, a sort of a, a natural disaster protection you might have in a country area. So we see that what we're doing is, is really about visibility and about safety and, uh, and that, that's the remit of, of every level of government. Um, it's just that we've 
I think, been very fortunate to have a, a community highly engaged in this, a political consensus, and, of course, a, a pathway to do something. Um, and we've basically said to every council around the country, um, steal what we've done. <laughs> just, just copy it if you want, or make it better, and tell us what you did so we can do that too. Um, because uh, there's, uh, there's, as I said before, there's many different pathways into this, um, and we just want to keep things going, regardless of what's happening at the, uh, the state and federal level. Fantastic. Well, look, we really appreciate your time today, Trent, um, and we look forward to keeping in touch because I think this is fantastic, you know, groundbreaking work that's happening in the city of Darabin, and we commend you on it, and we look forward to, to further progress. So thanks very much. Thanks so much. Cheers. It's dreamy weather. We're on. You wave to a crooked one. Along an icy pond With a frozen moon A murder of silhouette Crows I saw And the tears on my face And the skates on the pond They spell Alice Disappear in your name, but you must wait for me somewhere across the sea. There's the wreck of a ship, your hair is like meadow grass on the tide, and the raindrops on my window, and the ice in my dream. Turn the hands back on How does the ocean rock the boat? How does the razor find my throat? The only strings that hold me here Are tangled around the pier And so a secret kiss And I will think of this When I'm dead in my grave Set me adrift And I'm lost Over there And I must be insane To go skating on your name And by tracing it
secret kiss brings madness with bliss. And I will think of this when I'm dead in my Set me adrift and I'm lost over there and I must be insane to go skating on your name and my tracing it twice I fell through the a lovely song of um, Tom Waits called Alice of um, an album called Alice which has been a favourite of mine for a while it's uh, not new but it's it's an oldie but a goodie so it was really interesting chatting uh, I chatted earlier today to Trent McCarthy from City of Darabin about what they're doing and um, you know they're really putting a strong emphasis on it. I mean, the fact that they've restructured the whole council organisation around the objective of treating climate as an emergency, which is how it needs to be treated because obviously, you know, the time to sit back and not do anything is well, well past and it's good to see a government actually acknowledging that and taking some really strong action. So we look forward to keeping, keeping up with them. My next show will be on the 23rd of April and we'll be having a bit more of a focus on uh, grassroots and, and lo- particularly local government initiative. Uh, Imogen Jab, who is the BZE um, staff member who primarily works with local communities and local governments, we're going to be having a bit of a chat to her about some of the work that she's doing with um, local government for sustainability, um, which is a organisation that takes in a lot of different local governments so keep tuned for that come April the 23rd but it's where a lot of things are happening and if you've got a local government that you think is doing great things that we should know about um, I'd be really happy to have a discussion with them so feel free to get in touch my Twitter is at EJ4573 and I'm pretty active on that in terms of climate and or the Beyond Zero Emissions one, which is at Beyond Zero News and either of those, and we can um, follow through and have a chat about that. So we're... um We'll go on with some other discussions that we've had uh, today. I had a chat with Lee Urbank, who is from Friends of the Earth and particularly is a coordinator for their Act on Climate initiative. So we'll now have a chat with, um, or listen to the chat that I had earlier today with Lee about um, a various amount of things that they're doing. So let's get on to that now. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR and I'm happy to have with us today Lee Urbank and Lee is from Friends of the Earth and the Act on Climate Coordinator. Welcome, Lee. G'day, g'day. Thanks for having me. No problem. Look, we want to talk about a few things with you today that have um, 
just kind of uh, semi-breaking news. Um, we've seen a delay in the first of the interim emissions reductions target by almost a year that the Victorian government had within the terms of reference said would be uh, set by the 8th of June and that's mm. looking like being pushed back by, um, well, certainly into 2019. So could you give us a bit of a, an outline for our listeners what this, what part of the policy this affects and obviously we have listeners that tune into the podcast from around the country and internationally but what the framework in Victoria is uh, and how this delay impacts and, and you know mm. what are some of the underlying reasons and, and implications that it's going to have Yep sure so um, in Victoria we're really lucky to have a government that is a bit more on the front foot when it comes to tackling climate change and in February last year we actually saw the Daniel Andrews government strengthen the state's climate change laws with the support of the Greens and some crossbenchers in the upper house and what that has brought into effect is a legislated target of zero emissions by 2050 um, for the state of Victoria and a requirement that the government sets targets every five years to that ultimate end goal. Um, what we've recently seen happen is the interim panel that is advising the government on the targets, they have pushed back um, they're giving their advice to the government until 2019 and the unfortunate implication of that for for those that are concerned about climate change is that it, it kicks the, the can down the road until after the election so you know if if we do see um, you know a government elected that is more hostile to climate change action you know there is a risk that we might not end up with uh, with any targets mm. Yeah, well, that's a pretty significant risk, isn't it? And um, mm. you know, there's been a lot of good work done in this space, and it hasn't. You know, these these um, steps forward haven't come easily. You know, they've they've come mm. at a cost of of a lot of people keeping on pushing this agenda. Um, and it's been great, you know, as you said, the, the steps and leadership that the Victorian government has taken up to this point, and we really don't want to see that, you know, being regressive as we're seeing with lots of the. Um, you know things coming out of the, the, at the federal sphere, i.e., the, the national energy guarantee and the potential implications that puts around uh, the good work that's happened on a state level around renewable energy targets, particularly and, and possibly curtailing them. So we need action forward. We don't need action, action backwards, obviously. So this is a real concern. So is there uh, is this locked in? Is this interim panel likely to be able to come up with? Um, uh, setting these targets earlier. What do you think are the key issues here? Was it put in place too late? Or Yeah, look, um, you know, the government made a commitment to set the targets in 2018, and they made that commitment um, when they released their climate change framework for the state a few years ago. Um, so obviously it is a disappointment, but, um, you know, the government can can demonstrate goodwill and a commitment by... You know, looking looking to the budget um, to invest in climate change solutions. You know, there are things that the government can you know act on without um, this advice. And yeah, we'd love to see the Daniel Andrews government commit to delivering the state's first ever climate change focused budget. 
to really supercharge um, you know the the emerging clean tech sector and yeah really put us on a, a good trajectory towards zero emissions. And there's potentially, you know, money, well, there is money coming into the Victorian coffers in relation to the Snowy Hydro, isn't there? Yeah, well, you know, a few months ago when that decision was made, we did issue a statement calling for that money to be directed towards climate solutions. Just outline and for our listeners how that came about or what that is, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Snowy 2.0 and everything, so what we're talking about in this, in this instance. Sure. So um, the states of New South Wales and Victoria, um, they, they were, up until very recently, major shareholders in, in the Snowy Hydro infrastructure. So in order for the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, to you know, start implementing his vision for a, a Snowy Hydro 2.0 that would see a greater level of hydro... Um, pumped hydro capacity um, the federal government has been um, kind of has had to purchase the uh, the stake that New South Wales and Victoria have in that asset so what that has delivered I mean for the state of Victoria we've seen around two billion dollars into the state's coffers so you know a nice uh, nice mm. top up to the budget um, but one of the things that we've found in Victoria you know, while we do have really good renewable energy laws, um, we've got a strengthened Climate Change Act, we've banned fracking, which is all amazing, but now we think it's time for the government to put their money where their mouth is, and, you know, the best way of doing that is to really put a down payment on action in the budget. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So for our listeners out there... You know who are, who are really passionate and, and hearing this information, which uh, may or may not be new information for them. What's the best way that they can engage to keep that pressure up? Yeah, well, um, there's there's a few things that um, your listeners can can do to be to take action and make sure their voice is heard. So, firstly, while the the decision around the state's emissions targets has been deferred, um, the submissions phase has opened. So this panel is now seeking community um, voices about the level of ambition and what these targets should do. So I'd encourage people to make sure that they are sending in a submission. Um, We've put together a really simple online form to allow people to have their say, um, and that can be found at melbournefoe.org.au. Have your say with underscores have underscore your underscore say um so you know we've already seen uh you know over a hundred people make a submission and we've just launched this a few days ago so you know we'd love to see more and more people participating in that yeah and and i mean look this is the thing isn't it that um we know the technology's there, we know this transition can happen, it needs to happen in a just way and what needs to keep that that momentum is political pressure. So the more people that can make submissions and really, you know, to have politicians sit up and see, hey, this is really important to people. So I'd encourage people and we'll we'll give that address again, um, at towards the end of the show so that people can get on there and make that submission. Excellent. Thank you so much.
No, that's that's fine. It's great that that, that um, you've made that easy for people because obviously there's a lot of people who are really passionate about this stuff and want to see moving in a direction, but you know may not necessarily have the the, the technical or, or policy background. So, you know, if we've got avenues that um, people can express express um, how they want this to to move forward, that that's really fantastic. So. So that was a lovely piece of music from Mia Dyson. It's just nice to um, break up uh, some of our serious discussions um, with a little bit of music. So, But we'll get back to chatting with Lee and the important stuff that's going on in terms of the space. Now... Um what are, what are we looking at for the timing for the the state climate or the budget that that can really put a, put some pressure on on um, shaping that around response to climate and how does that relate to the st- the time frame for the snowy hydro money? Yeah, look, I mean the, these decisions, you know, they're executive decisions that are made by governments. Um, we do know the budget is going to be announced on the first of May. Um, so it's usually the first Tuesday um, of May in Victoria. And, yeah, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at, you know, what allocations have been made towards climate change. Um, we're going to be benchmarking that um, against last year's expenditure. And we really do need to see an uptick in the amount of investment going towards climate change. Um, and one of the things that we've found in our work uh, throughout Victoria you know, climate change impacts affect communities in different ways. Um, in the central gold fields, it's bushfire risk and, and you know, their ability to fight fires, which is a, a major concern. Um, yet in the inner urban areas, in Preston and Brunswick, for example, it really is more about heat waves and the urban heat island effect. Mm. So, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all solution, but... What we do know is that everyone would benefit from some government support. So that's really, you know, the underpinning logic of our push for Victoria's first climate budget. And there's also, you know, a, a, a layer of analysis that we do need to start seeing from the, the state government. Um, you know, we've already heard from the ratings agencies such as Moody's and Standard and Poor's that if companies and cities and states fail to take into account climate risk, then their AAA or their, their credit rating um, could be downgraded. Yeah, and I and think that's a really important factor because, you know, we've previously had things like divestment campaigns, which were great to highlight these issues, but now um, if we follow on from um, the... Uh, Paul Corners show a couple of weeks ago, where CEOs actually need to start taking seriously climate risk and factoring that into their risks across a whole lot of different categories. Uh, you know, it really comes down to this is, you know, we're in climate emergency and people need to actually be factoring this in. And, and certainly, you know, for people out there that have got their super um you know, you, you want to make sure that your portfolio is not being um, exposed uh, to stranded assets and a whole lot of other things, and, and there needs to be a responsibility by those those fund managers, which I think we're, we're starting to see the start of that being really taken seriously. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it, if, we've, if we get this right, we'll see governments making smart investments. 
and you know rather than investing in uh, you know um, let's say a, a hospital that that has poor energy efficiency and doesn't really perform up to scratch like you know if we've got better accounting we could see um, a wiser investment um, in the beginning and you know a lot of avoided emissions and that goes particularly for road infrastructure and rail infrastructure mm. we also need to start accounting for the actual um, the climate impacts risk so not only the emissions but you know does it make sense to build a subway um, in an area that will be inundated by sea level rise mm. those types of things we really do need to pay very close attention to now yeah exactly and um we're talking also this week with um, Trent McCarthy from City of Darabin about the climate emergency uh, status that uh, that council is putting on all its operations and, and the actions that it's taking across its council operations and, and outreach to the community and advocacy to other local, state and, and federal government uh, to, to really look at this importantly because, you know, whenever we have these these increasingly frequent massive events which we know are related uh, in terms of frequency and severity to, to climate um, we're talking you know in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars of road infrastructure rail infrastructure bridges sewage treatment plants all those type of things having to have major um, you know works on them to get them back up to scratch again and these things have a cost. Uh, not acting on climate has a cost, and that's what we need to see governments start taking into account. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, like I think the taxpayers, you know, we deserve to have, uh, you know, a, a level of transparency around, you know, well, what are, what are the climate impacts costing us? Mm. You know, like at the end of the day, you know, all of these, you know, anything that the government is spending money on, it's coming from the taxpayer. And yeah, we do need to get a grip of what what we're spend, what we're spending where. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be an interesting year in Victoria. We've got a state election coming up um, towards the end of the year, which has other implications as well for this for this delay. So I, I, I take it that you guys will be following fairly closely and and looking at um, you know the policies that different different parties are bringing to that election around their stance on on climate action oh absolutely um you know your listeners can rest assured that we'll be out there paying very close attention to, to what the political parties are putting on the table um one thing that does really concern me at the moment is that we do have an opposition party in victoria uh, led by matthew guy um, and they do not have a climate change policy um, you know, we, we have, um, you know, sent a strong signal to them that, you know, the electorate does expect a major party, um, a party of government to have a clear climate policy. So, you know, I, I definitely, um, encourage people to contact their, their local Liberal MPs and just ask them, you know, what's going on when it comes to climate? What's the party, um, putting on the table so that Victoria can, Rated emissions and actually deal with the impacts that are now locked in. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's an issue that, um, like a whole lot of other issues, but it's something that, um, you know, people deserve to, to know where each party stands and to be able to, um, you know, make decisions. Because it's certainly, we know that the research that's been done in Victoria um, by Sustainability Victoria, you know, this is an issue that people care about. Um, so really we need to have those, those players put their cards on the table so that people can make informed choices. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And um, I know that you guys have got some events coming up. Do you want to give our listeners um, some information on that? Yeah, sure. So coming up on Earth Day, um, we've got an event at O'Donnell Gardens, um, which is next door to Luna Park in St Kilda. Um, and this is on April Sunday, April 22. And what we're, we're calling the event um, Break the Radio Silence on Climate. So we're going to be gathering together with community members um, for a picnic. Um, we're going to be talking climate. We're going to be working on some submissions um, about the emissions targets. And we're going to cap off the day with a, a banner photo um, with the iconic Lunar Park as the backdrop. So the more the merrier. Um, and if, for people who would like to find out more info, uh, you can head to actonclimate.org. Dot au forward slash Earth Day Action and there's underscores between Earth Day and Action. Um, and then on more of an election front, Friends of the Earth Melbourne, uh, we're gearing up to, to announce an event on May 24 at the Fitzroy Town Hall. So I'll just issue a bit of a save the date um, for the moment. But I can confirm that we do have some really good speakers um, locked in for that event and it will be marking the six months march to the next election. So a bit more of an electoral focused event there. Okay, fantastic. And um, I'm sure people, if they go to actonclimate.org.au, um, you can find information on those various events and um, yep. follow your nose through that and you'll get where you need to be. Thanks for chatting with us today, Lee. Um, we'll encourage um, listeners to go and make a submission. So, again, that was... Do you want to just repeat that website for us? Yep, so melbournefoe.org.au forward slash have underscore your underscore say. Fantastic. All right, well, um, we'll look forward to... Um, seeing how that goes and what's your general feeling around this uh, the, the panel that's been appointed are they the right people in the right spots look yeah we've got um, we've got the former climate minister Greg Combay chairing the panel we've also got um, a Nobel laureate climate scientist Dr Penny Wetton and also Dr Lorraine Stevenson who has a lot of experience with the energy sector and has actually been advising the um, the New South Wales Liberal government on climate change. So we do have a, a panel of, of kind of diversity, and you know they're, they're capable of um, of uh, you know making sure that these targets are science based and um, putting us on the track to limit warming to to 1.5 or 2 degrees. So fingers crossed. Yeah, well, let's look forward to um, seeing what comes out, and that's looking like in February 2019, so we look forward to that. But we need to keep up pressure on all levels of government to uh, keep moving forward on 
Climate Action. Great to talk to you today, Lee, and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. So that was a discussion that I had earlier today with Lee Urbank from Friends of the Earth and the Act on Climate Initiative. Um, that's all we've got time for in today's show. I'm Erin Jones, and I've been pleased to um, host the show today. I'll be back on the air next uh, on the April the 23rd in a fortnight. Um, Vivian will be on the show next week. So uh, just a reminder that the BZD discussion group at the Mal- University of Melbourne is on tonight. Check the website for details on that. That starts at 6.30 if you can get your way down there. As always, it's been great to bring you the show and um, we look forward to chatting soon. Bye-bye. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.